Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're talking about incretins and type 2 diabetes management. Today's episode is certified for up to 0.5 AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits, and ABIM MOC points. If that's something of interest to you, listen on to the end to learn how to get those credits. And also, let me take a moment to thank Lily for their support in making this episode possible. Thank you. Joining me today is Dr. Zen Chi Lu, the James M. Moss Professor of Diabetes at the University of Virginia. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Aaron. It is really my pleasure to be here. So what are twincretins and why are they so important to the world of type 2 diabetes management? Twincretins are relatively new term and they're referring to agents that are able to activate both the glucagon-like peptide 1, in short, the GLP-1, commonly we say that, receptor and the glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, in short, GIP receptor. So to understand the importance of the twin cratings, let's first go over the physiology and the pathophysiology and how they are related to you know, our physiological functions and diabetes. Both GLP-1 and GIP are increasing hormones secreted uh, from the intestine of a nutrient intake, meaning if we eat something, and our intestine will secrete those hormones. And those two hormones are really responsible for regulating post-meal insulin secretion. This is what we call the increasing effect. And this effect helps to decrease post-meal glucose excursion, meaning if it's too high, they can lower it down. GLP-1 and GLP exert their effects by binding to their specific receptors, which belong to the G-protein-coupled receptor family. In pancreatic islets, both GLP-1 receptor and GLP receptor expressed in beta cells, but only GLP receptor is expressed in alpha cells. In addition to regulating insulin secretion, GLP-1 and GLP affect the functions of many tissues and organs that express their receptors. So in terms of the physiological significance or pathophysiology in type 2 diabetes, we have to go back to discuss the difference as well uh, between the uh, GLP-1 and the GRP. And actually, there are several major differences. Firstly, GLP-1 inhibits appetite and food intake, whereas the GRP generally has no significant impact food intake. Secondly, GLP-1 suppresses uh, postprandial glucagon secretion, while GRP enhances postprandial glucagon response. And thirdly, they both slow down gastric emptying, but GLP-1 is uh, much more potent than GRP. Additionally, in adipose tissue, GRP, but not GLP-1, facilitates a better deposition. So GRP might have some effect in terms of promoting obesity. And finally, GRP receptor is expressed in bone, including uh, several cell types, 
such as oxidic crust, oxidic blast, and the oxidicides, and that mediates meal-induced suppression of bone resorption. So in people with uh, type 2 diabetes, the increasing effect is reduced, or in some people, it's completely lost. However, there's also another big difference uh, between these two increasing hormones. Infusion studies in humans have shown that GLP-1 is capable of stimulating insulin secretion in people with type 2 diabetes, but the GLP is almost ineffective. It has been reported that hyperglycemia, meaning high blood glucose, reduces GIP receptor expression and beta cell responses to GIP. On the other hand, better glycemic control with uh, intensive insulin therapy can partially restore GIP's insulinotropic effect, possibly by restoring GIP receptor expression in the iris. So because of those similarities and the differences between GIP-1 and GIP in healthy humans, and those with type 2 diabetes, it has not been speculated that people with type 2 diabetes might benefit from synergistic additive effect between these two increasing hormones. That's the interest on pre-incretin. So far, we've been talking about incretins in the realm of diabetes, but what are their roles beyond glycemic control? So in addition to the other beta cells, many tissues express GLP-1 receptors and also GLP receptors. So let's focus a little bit more on the GLP-1 receptors because this has been the major development in the past. So GLP-1 receptors are expressed additionally in the central nervous system, cardiovascular system, liver, adipose tissue, kidneys, and also gastrointestinal tract, and those are just the major ones. So as a result, there are many other actions of GLP-1 receptor agonist beyond the glycemic control that can benefit patients with type 2 diabetes. The most important non-glycemic control action include the cardiovascular protection, renal protection, and weight loss. So far, we have three GLP-1 receptor agonists that have been demonstrated to have cardiovascular and renal protective benefits. These are once daily liraglutide, once weekly dilaglutide, and once weekly semaglutide. In terms of weight loss, two GLP-1 receptor agonists have received FDA-approved specific indication for weight loss. They are liraglutide at three milligram once daily, and the semaglutide at 2.4 milligram once weekly. Additionally, multiple studies have shown a promising effect of GLP-1 receptor agonist in reducing level of fat accumulation. So these agents are potentially very useful for the treatment of a condition called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is frequently associated with type 2 diabetes. How are GLP-1 receptor agonists and DPP-4 inhibitors developed? And how should these drugs be used? The fact that the people with type 2 diabetes have a decrease or complete loss of the increasing effect, but a robust insulin secretion response to GLP-1 infusion made GLP-1 a natural or clear therapeutic target 
for type 2 diabetes management. So two approaches have been successfully used to develop GLP-1 based therapeutic agents. The first approach was to inhibit the activity of an enzyme called the peptidyl peptidase 4, in short DPP4. And this enzyme breaks down GLP-1 and GRP in liver. And this is the reason why GLP-1 and GRP both have a very short half-life inside our body of only a few minutes. Inhibition of this enzyme increases the endogenous GLP-1 concentrations by two to three-fold. We have nowadays four DPP-4 inhibitors in the U.S. market. These are cetagliptin, saxagliptin, lenagliptin, and alagliptin. Additionally, there's another DPP-4 inhibitor called vedagliptin, which is available outside of the U.S. market. DPP-4 inhibitors cause a moderate decrease in hemoglobin A1c, roughly 0.5 to 0.8%. These agents also weight neutral. So they are a good choice in those patients who are not at high risk of or have established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, or heart failure and uh, need a little bit additional help to control glycemia after metformin and the lifestyle modification. The second approach was the development of GLP-1 analogs or GLP-1 receptor agonists. These agents are resistant to DPP-4 degradation, so they have much longer half-life than native GLP-1. We now have six injectable agents and one oral agent available for clinical use. The injectables include daily exanatide, weekly exanatide, weekly dilaglutide, daily liraglutide, daily lixisanatide, and weekly semaglutide. Semaglutide is also available in daily oral preparation. These agents have much stronger potency in decreasing glycemia than DPP-4 inhibitors and can reduce hemoglobin A1c by up to 2%. Another major benefit is that the use of these agents is associated with a variable degree of weight loss. They should be considered in those patients whose glycemic control is well above the glycemic target of the metformin and the lifestyle modification, particularly if they are overweight. In those at high risk of or having established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease, agents with proven cardiovascular and renal benefits should be considered independently of baseline hemoglobin A1c, individualized hemoglobin A1c target, or metformin use. What do historical findings tell us about GIP as either a pathophysiological or a therapeutic agent? And why is the GIP paradox important? So interestingly, while we had a lot of GLP-1-based treatment options, GIP actually was discovered well before GLP-1. But the understanding of GIP's physiology lags clearly behind that of GLP-1. 
GIP receptor and the GIP1 receptor share around 40% of uh, sequence homology, but they display extremely high selectivity for their respective ligands. As a result, previous efforts have been focused on developing respective ligands for either GLP-1 receptor or GIP receptor. As I just mentioned, the GLP-1-based treatment has uh, evolved rapidly to become major treatment options for people with type 2 diabetes. On the other hand, the development of GIP-based therapy has been limited due to two major factors. The first one is the fact that the GRP-mediated insulin secretion is impaired in people with type 2 diabetes. And the second factor is the possibility of the weight-promoting effect of GRP. So as folks a little bit on the second part, early work using the approach called the loss of function approach suggested that the GRP promotes obesity by increasing fat deposition. This actually has limited the interest initially in developing GRP receptor agonist and promoted the interest in developing its antagonist to treat type 2 diabetes. While the loss of function studies suggested that the GRP may drive weight gain, there's no convincing evidence, however, that the GIP receptor agonism increases adiposity or body weight. Thus far, there is evidence of supporting both cases, and this apparent paradox has not been reconciled. It has been speculated, though, that GIP receptor antagonism may enhance GLP-1 receptor activity, while chronic GIP agonism may downregulate and desensitize GIP receptor activity. Clearly, more study is needed for a better understanding of the GIP paradox. What do the latest clinical data tell us about dual incretin therapy? So this is a very exciting area nowadays. Given the difference in physiology and the pathophysiology between GIP-1 and GIP, it has not been speculated that a combined activation of the GIP as well as the GLP-1 system could result in beneficial effects beyond those obtained by a simple addition of the two separate effects, either by concomitant or by sequential activation of the two hormone systems. In other words, there might be synergistic effect between the two systems. Multiple preclinical studies have suggested the possibility of this synergistic effect between GLP-1 receptor agonist and the GIP receptor agonist in terms of glycemic control and weight loss. And these results have served as the basis and importantly motivation for the development of dual GLP-1 receptor and GIP receptor agonist to treat type 2 diabetes. Another important evidence is that bariatric surgery, which is so far the most effective treatment for type 2 diabetes and obesity, is associated with elevated plasma levels of GLP-1, GIP, and uh, another hormone called glucagon. 
the structural homology MGLP1, GRP, and Gugagan allows for the development of intermixed unimolecular peptides with activity at each of their respective receptors. Recently, chimeric peptides that combine elements of both GLP-1 and GRP and have the capability to activate both receptors have been demonstrated to have remarkable glucose lowering efficacy and weight loss effect in people with type 2 diabetes and obesity. There are multiple agents under development nowadays with a clear front runner called trazepatide. Trazepatide is a 39 amino acid synthetic peptide with activity, meaning agonist activity at both GRP and GLP-1 receptors. It includes a 20 carbon acid moiety, and this allows a half-life extension to approximately five days. That means you can give this compound once a week. So far, there are five large randomized phase three trials in the in a program called the Surpass program have been completed, evaluating the efficacy and the safety of tazapatide. Certainly, there are some other smaller studies as well. The first Surpass study is called the Surpass One study. It evaluated tazapatide at three doses: five milligram, ten milligram was 15 milligrams once weekly as a monotherapy against the placebo among people with type 2 diabetes inadequately controlled by diet and excess alone. And if they were naive to injectable diabetes therapy. At the end of the trial of 40 weeks, tazapatide lowered hemoglobin A1C by up to 2% and those dependently decreased body weight, ranging from 7 to 9.5 kilograms. It was well-tolerated with a safety profile similar to that of GLP-1 receptor agonist, and there was no increased risk of hypoglycemia. The second one called the surplus 2 study compared trazepatide to injectable semaglutide in people with type 2 diabetes. It was an open-label 40-week trial with patients being randomized to tazapatide, again, three doses, 5 mg, 10 mg, 15 mg once weekly, versus uh, semaglutide, 1 mg once weekly. Tazapatide was superior to semaglutide in decreasing hemoglobin A1c, as well as reducing body weight. The third one is called the surpass 3 study. This study compared tazapatide, again, three doses, 5, 10, 15 milligrams once weekly, with once daily injection of titrated insulin degradate in people with type 2 diabetes inadequately controlled by metformin. Overall, tazapatide was superior to titrated insulin degradate with greater reductions in hemoglobin A1c and body weight at week 52 and a lower risk of hypoglycemia. The surplus 4 study compared tazapatide at other 5 mg, 10 mg, or 15 mg once weekly with insulin collagen in type 2 diabetes with established 
cardiovascular disease or increased cardiovascular risk compared with a glycogen tazapatide demonstrated a greater hemoglobin A1C reduction with a lower incidence of hypoglycemia as well at week 52. The last surpass study just published not long ago evaluated tazapatide as an add-on to insulin glycogen compared to placebo in patients with uncontrolled type 2 diabetes. Tazapatide was more effective than placebo in improving glycemia at week 40. Additionally, there are several important ongoing phase three studies involving tazapatide, including the surpass CVOT in people with type 2 diabetes and confirmed atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and the surmount one study, which tests the ability of tazapatide to produce weight loss in people with type 2 diabetes and obesity. Both are estimated to complete in 2024. A meta-analysis just published, including seven randomized controlled studies with a duration of at least 26 weeks, showed that tazapatide did not increase the risk of major cardiovascular events in participants with type 2 diabetes. However, there are short studies. These are indeed some very promising findings that you've been sharing. The future does seem exciting. And speaking about the future, what do you see as the future direction of other co-agonists? Again, this is a very exciting time, and this is also a very exciting area. And uh, frankly, the future may go different directions. However, having said that, right now there are multiple coagonists under active development. As I mentioned, GLP-1, GRP, and glucagon share complementary activities and the tissue-specific distribution of the respective receptors and thus functions raise the possibility for synergistic interactions at the systemic level. As such, interests are very high in developing a variety of coagonists. Because of the similar structures at the N-terminal region shared by these peptides, it is actually technologically not that difficult to synthesize sequence intermixed peptide for this purpose. In addition to unimolecular GRP receptor and GRP1 receptor agonist, GLP-1 receptor and glucagon receptor dual agonist and GLP-1 receptor, GRP receptor and glucagon receptor triagonist are all under active development. One synthetic peptide triagonist called SAR441255 should be mentioned here. It is a unimolecular GLP-1 receptor, GRP receptor, and the glucagon receptor triagonist. It has a very high but uh, very interesting, very balanced activity at each receptor. Preclinical data have shown added benefit for triagonist that integrate glucagon receptor agonism over GLP-1 receptor and GRP receptor coagonist. A recently published phase one study showed that in healthy humans, SAR441255 improved 
glycemic control during a mixed meal tolerance test and it was well tolerated. So this compound has a promising future, but clearly more studies are needed and are ongoing. This has been fantastic, but that's about all the time that we have for today. I want to say thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Liu. Thank you for having me here. It has been fun. We covered quite a bit in today's episode. For those of you wanting to claim those credits I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you'll need to visit the Endocrine Society's Center for Learning and view a brief animation, which will provide visual learning cues, and then take a short quiz to apply your knowledge. I'll include links for both of those in today's episode description. I hope you enjoyed today's topic and our discussion with Dr. Liu. Until next time, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.